welcome to this episode of the Bread and Goods podcast. I'm speaking to Karthik Akhileshwaran, who runs Growth Teams. It's an initiative that, that tries to help improve state capacity in developing countries to accelerate uh, economic growth. Uh, hi, Karthik. Nice to have you on. Hi, uh, Pradhu. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's a real pleasure. All right. So what do you work on and why is it important? Yeah, great. So um, maybe I can start with the question about sort of why growth matters. So um, I won't go too much into the details. There's quite a lot of research out there and just sort of general understanding, but uh, I'll just give a few highlights and then I'll get into what what I'm doing, what I'm trying to work on with, with respect to that. You know, my view is that economic growth is the most powerful engine for increased productivity and, and human welfare. That's based on a variety of data points, history, and a lot of research out there suggests this. And, you know, if we look at all the countries in the world now that have what we would, that, that, that are what we would call high income, you know, they're, they're generally human beings in those places are actually, generally speaking, notwithstanding all the discussions you could have about flaws and shortcomings and pitfalls and all of that, generally speaking, you know, achieving pretty high levels of human welfare and just flourishing, I guess you could say, than people in other places. One, maybe just one fact from the data that I'll just mention here that maybe gives a flavor of, of why growth matters is that there's no country in the world that has high levels of GDP per capita and low levels of basic human welfare. And at the same time, there's no country that has high levels of basic welfare, basic human welfare, at low levels of GDP per capita. I'm not trying to make a causal statement here. I'm just sort of making an observation about what the data says about the association between these two things. This high-level fact, I think, you know, in my view, seems to suggest that increasing GDP per capita matters a lot and that focusing solely or largely on other aspects of human welfare will only get you so far. Maybe I'll stop there on why growth matters and I'll get into a little bit about what what I've been doing and what I'm trying to do right now through growth teams. On, In a nutshell, growth teams, which is an organization that I've set up with a former colleague of mine, is aimed at empowering developing countries to put analysis into action for job creation and economic growth. Yeah, So that's the sort of headline. Um, I think taking it one level down, what we're trying to do is essentially build a new entity, a new organization, initiative, whatever you want to call it, that works with developing country governments across what you could call the policy cycles, all the way from helping them with analysis and uh, strategy and sort of what what parts of the economy, trying to figure out what parts of the economy can actually drive a positive growth episode for them, and, and also sort of trying to analyze and identify what, what's holding that back. So all the way from sort of the analysis and strategy side of things through to implementation, which is sort of where, we'd, where we've started the effort, and I'll get into that a bit later. So trying to, you know, help governments to translate sort of all that analysis and strategy into what's going on on the ground, you know, into practice. And then all the way to what you could say, sort of trying to help governments to, you know, build their own capabilities to, to actually um, engage in and 
make real their economic growth strategies. That that's the sort of high level vision for for what we're trying to do is, you know, build this new entity to work across that cycle with a focus on economic growth. So maybe I'll stop there. And you know, my base model for this is basically that you know, when governments want growth, they they get what they want. You know, they they typically are able to buy, borrow, beg, steal uh, technical capabilities from other countries from multilateral institutions. And when they don't want growth, the problem is not that they're lacking knowledge. That the problem is that elites in those countries really like uh, would become are more comfortable having low growth. Uh, a poor population than having high growth and a richer population. My base model does not explain how outside money or knowledge is likely to fix that. I assume you do, you disagree with me. Where what am I getting wrong here? Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you asked this question up front. Um, because I I think it's an important one. Um, and it, it's it's useful to dig into a bit. And I I think I also saw that um somebody had posed sort of a version of this question. Um, in your in your yeah, um, tweet uh, in response Riggs. to your tweet, yeah, yeah, exactly. Who I'm I'm familiar with some of his work from. I, I think uh, he used to blog quite regularly many many years back. So <laughs> I was following him back then. So I'm I'm um, glad to dig into this into this question. First thing, so I have a few points to make on on this point. So the first point is that this argument about incentives being you know really critical. Um, this applies to, in my view, all domains of policy, not just to a policy related to economic growth, right? So incentive alignment is important for, you know, any area you could think of, education, health, public safety, so on and so forth. And I agree that the key constraint often isn't a lack of knowledge. And, and in fact, you know, when, when we get into a bit more of the weeds about what we're trying to do with the growth teams, that'll become apparent because our approach isn't necessarily focused on providing just a, a new type of knowledge or a new idea or whatever. That, that's not sort of the core of what we're trying to do. Incentives matter a lot, no, no doubt about it. At the same time, I'm not a huge fan of determinism. Incentives matter, um, but there aren't, there aren't, the incentives aren't the only thing that matters, right? And, and it's also not a binary thing where it's like, a light switch where, okay, you turn the light switch on and the incentives are there and you turn the light switch off and the incentives are gone, right? So there's some continuum here. And at the same time, um, incentives, there's not just one incentive, like a yes, we're pro-growth, no, we're not pro-growth, right? There's many, many incentives operating all the time in, in all places, right? So um, so I, I, I sort of take your question as uh, some some version of sort of the Stefan Durkheim, like, you know, gambling on development type type approach. And, you know, we've spoken to him about what we're doing. And um, and I, I think there's a lot of merit in, in this point that like sort of the elite bargain and, you know, that that can matter, right? That can matter uh, quite a lot. Okay, so that, that's first point. Second point um, I, I think that this leads to is that the, the question itself implies that if you can just get the incentives right, right, quote unquote, translating those into useful policy ideas, which is where that knowledge constraint might crop up if it, if it exists. So translating those into useful policy ideas and then implementing those ideas in real life will just happen as a matter of course. That's That's sort of the implication of the question, right? That like, just get the incentives right and everything else will follow. My view is that this is a misguided sort of uh, representation of how things actually work. 
one of my grad school professors, his name is Michael Wolka. He likes to call this view implementation by edict. If you just sort of put the policy down on paper and you approve it, then implement, implementation will just happen because you said that this is what should be implemented, right? And, and um, the best data that we have out there on what you could call state capability. In fairness, that data isn't perfect, doesn't quite capture sort of what we mean by state capability, but it, it's something. The best data that we have suggests that state capability isn't really improving much at all over the past several dec decades across a large range of countries. Unless you believe that all that matters is just having an idea on paper, even if that idea isn't actually implemented in practice, if you believe that that can lead to growth, if that's your mental model, then okay, fine. But my mental model is that sort of <laughs> incentives matter, the um, sort of the, the ideas and the, the policies and the strategies that use matter, but so does actually putting those things into practice, right? All these things matter. They have an important role. Um, so if you, if you believe that, if you take that, if you take my view, then um, the implementation uh, piece of this isn't a trivial thing, right? So even if you have the incentives, you know, even if a country or a set of elites have the incentives pushing them towards uh, development pro growth direction, doesn't necessarily mean that sort of it's going to flow all the way down to things actually getting done on the ground for growth. Yeah. The third point here is sort of like a natural follow on from this, right? Which is that, um, okay, incentives matter, but where do these incentives come from, right? That's sort of like the natural question that you might ask, right? That they don't just fall from heaven, right? Um, so the short answer is that they potentially come from lots of different places. Yeah. And one place is from the private sector. Yeah. And the private sector, it, we call it the private sector, but it's, it's actually a misnomer. The private sector is not a monolithic thing, right? The private sector is made up of different actors operating in different parts of the economy that require different sorts of things from government. Yeah, they require what you could call different types of public inputs, right? And so our idea, based on a bunch of research that's been happening over the last many years, sort of at the intersection of political economy and economic growth, is that we want to try to facilitate investment into parts of the economy that have more of a natural orientation towards, say, productivity growth versus rent-seeking, and that if you can do that, those actors that are sort of more on those productivity oriented rather than rent seeking oriented parts of the economy, those actors will in turn put pressure on the government that can shape the incentives that public officials face more towards growth rather than away from it. So it's a, it's a bit complicated, I, I, I realize, but um, the idea is that if you can basically get the right types of private sector actors shaping the incentives of the public sector, which already happens anyway, right? So there's already some interaction between public and, and private sectors, right? So that, that's already having an influence on the incentives that public, uh, public officials face. If you can sort of get the, the, a different set of private, private actors exerting that influence or a different type of sort of private sector um, actor inserting that influence, that itself can actually shape the incentives um, that, that public officials face, 
towards rather than away from, from growth. So those are a few points that I would um, sort of mention in response to um, in response to that question. The next response to what you said just now would be that uh, isn't it isn't it an insurmountable barrier to get you know uh, productive businesses in these countries? As in, it's not for lack of trying that you know every day hundreds of uh, Malawian entrepreneurs, you know, very very small ones, forced entrepreneurs go on the go 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 on the road and try to improve their productivity in countries like Pakistan. You have businesses which try to which try to improve but but weren't but weren't able to, and um, it seems as if you know it's nearly impossible to uh, have a productive business in this country because the grip of existing economic elites on the government and the main times they are the government is so strong that uh, you know they just won't al- allow you to to start your uh, clothes factory or whatever or, or, or even if you can start your clothes factory you'll be you know in Hindi there's there's a word hafta you, you you'll be forced to play you'll be forced to pay a um, hefty hafta to the uh, to the existing elites. Yeah. So um, a, f- a few points I think in in response to that. So um, first thing to say is that this isn't a binary thing, right? So it's not that um, all countries are in the situation that you describe, or they're not, right? There, there's a there's quite a large range, right? Um, and so there might be some countries in the position that you're talking about. You know, I, I wouldn't disagree with um, the point that you make that maybe in you know maybe in places like that it's going to be sort of fairly difficult, right, to um, to achieve a somewhat sustained rapid growth episode. Yeah. Um, though the, I think that leads perhaps to my second point, which is that I think it's important to think about how countries have grown in the past and to recognize that ex ante, there were probably a lot of countries that have grown rapidly in the past that were in a situation probably similar to what you were just describing. Probably a lot of countries, right? I mean, there's no country where there are no vested interests that have strong grip over lots of parts of the economy and have that are cozy with the uh, you know the political elites. And I, I don't know of any country that's <laughs> that's uh, that's like that that doesn't have all that stuff, right? And I don't know any country country historically that was clear of all that stuff, right? That that's almost a given, right? So question the question is not so much sort of like um, can you uh, can you f- uh, figure out a way to achieve rapid growth, even in that sort of context? Because it's already happened, right? I mean, Ch- China is sort of the most recent example, right? Like the uh, most glaring recent example. But there's many other examples that have been going on in the last, you know, 60, 70 years. And, and then even before that, sort of the the the, the first sort of set of um, countries that um, sort of developed, right? That there was a lot of this stuff going on, right? I mean, all you have to do is read a bit of U.S. history to understand sort of how what you could say corrupt the public bureaucracy in the U.S. was for many, many decades, right? Sort of public sector reform in the U.S. only happened um, in the sort of first half of the 1900s, right? The Industrial Revolution was already well underway by then, right? So 
So the, the real question is that how did it happen even in that context, right? Because it's happened many, many times with a context some, somewhat similar to this. Um, and I, I think perhaps we can come to that. I have some points uh, later or, or we can get into it right now. Yeah, but... sure. Go on. Okay, sure. So I, I think um, the one point maybe that I want to make here is that there's this prevailing view in the development space and I, I think perhaps generally as well. I think, you know, we can get into sort of where it comes from, but there's this prevailing view that good governance is a prerequisite for for growth, right? So I I think this is related to your question, right? That like, you know, certainly in an environment that you you described where the elite bargain isn't really there, where the private sector is sort of like, you know, highly rent-seeking and um, that's sort of not the epitome of good governance, right? So there's some connection here. So there's this prevailing view that good governance is prerequisite, right? But again, as I was saying just just now, that there's many, many countries that sort of really don't tick the boxes of what people would call good governance that have actually achieved quite rapid growth. And in some cases, quite rapid growth across many, many decades. Um, So there's been this emerging literature over the last, you know, many years and, you know, perhaps even uh, before that. Um, and, and a range of voices now that have been arguing that, in fact, this hypothesis that good governance is a prerequisite for growth is is not true. That actually the key for sort of at least when you're a developing country, say sort of relatively low income, the key is actually harnessing your bad governance, quote unquote, to kickstart the rapid growth that can then sort of have feedback effects on sort of the quality of your governance. And that that's sort of the more macro version of what I was describing before about, about sort of the, the interplay between the private sector and the public sector. My my favorite example to use sort of from the research on this is, is a book um, by a political scientist at the University of Michigan, um, whose uh, name is uh, Yuan Yuan Ang. Um, she wrote a book a few years back called How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. is essentially- Exceptional book. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic book, and I don't want to say that that book uh, captures the only story about sort of the Chinese growth episode. There's many many books actually um, now that have sort of tried to frame some element of of um, what the authors perceive to be you know a, a um, critical for for the Chinese growth story. But I, I think her book does a great job of sort of capturing the governance piece of this, right? And her a core part of her hypothesis is exactly this point that actually it's not that China first uh, you know achieved this sort of Weberian ideal of good governance. It's actually that they first harnessed their bad governance, bad again in quotes, sort of personalized relations between you know government and private sector and sort of a lot of informal activity and sort of the use of norms to to shape behavior in the bureaucracy. All this sort of stuff that, again, would not be considered good, good governance or would, would not be considered Weberian, sort of in the classical sense. They harnessed all of that stuff to sort of drive growth in the first instance, drive investment and in growth in the first instance. And that had feedback effects on sort of what was, uh, how, how their bureaucracy sort of grew, learned, developed over time, right? So she calls this sort of a co-evolutionary view. I very much subscribe to that. And it's sort of because like, (laughs) 
it's sort of just how things work on the ground, right? Like, you know, you don't sort of first do, you know, good governance, then you get growth. I mean, I, I don't, again, there's no country that I've worked in that works like that, where you sort of, let's just do this first, then we get growth. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of co-evolution happening across all parts of the economy and society and, and the politics, right? So would, um, a, would a good summary then be that, you know, the, 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 the elites shape the private sector, but the, the private sector also shapes the elites. So there's a feedback loop here going, going on. And um, most um, conventional theories of growth uh, focus on one side of the feedback loop, which is, you know, the, the, the elites, but the, which means there's, there's a lot left out on the other side of the feedback loop, which is the private sector. That's right. And I, I don't want to, I mean, there is quite a large literature about, you know, state business relations and various parts of the world. So it's not that there's nothing there. It's just that um, in the typical discussions about sort of the economic literature and economic growth in developing countries, that, that's sort of what I have in my head, right? There, there's a lot of other literature out there, you know, touching on various aspects of this, but on this typical literature, you know, there was a, there was a piece in um, Astros mag magazine, um, I think you may have heard of this. It's sort of one of the new publications in yeah. the effect of altruism. Yeah. So there was a piece by a piece by Dietz Volrath. Um, it was a great piece. We're just trying to capture sort of what the um, economics literature sort of has to say about economic growth in developing countries, right? Essentially, that's the summary. So what you see in that piece is sort of the focus on like, you know, um, uh, Factors of production, you know, basically going through sort of like the the, very, the the evolution of growth models in the economics literature, right? So factors of production, and you know, then it gets to the the importance of institutions. That's where sort of like a lot of the uh, Douglas North, Asimoglu, Robinson, all that sort of stuff comes into play, right? So from that perspective, just looking at sort of that that um, line of line of thinking, I think that's where sort of a lot of these elements are are missing. Um, and as I was saying, there's there's a, a, another set of literature out there um, that I've become familiar with that's been coming up, I think, in the last sort of 10, 20 years that's been trying to take a different view that and, and sort of a, a view that sort of that you just captured in, in your statement, right? Uh, I think one last piece of this that I'll mention is that, um, you know, so, um, some of my, uh, you know, professors from grad school, they, they've worked a lot on state capability. Um, and they have a, a, a different version of what you said about this feedback loop, which is that state capability itself, again, there's this hypothesis that, you know, you get, you get um, the right institutions, quote unquote, on paper, and that will lead to sort of improved cap uh, state capability in practice. And, and again, there's a, there's a feedback loop there, which is that actually um, it's, it's a two-way street that actually you could actually figure, try to figure out how to actually get good state capability in practice, meaning how to try to actually directly improve outcomes on the ground. And that itself, that success can help you to figure out what your quote unquote institution should look like on paper, right? Mm -hmm. So there's multiple feedback, feedback loops going on here that I, I wanted to bring out. There's one between sort of public and state capability and private sector. And then there's another one between sort of like what's on paper and what's going on in practice. I think all these things have some role to play uh, when we're talking about growth in bad governance environments or low state capability environments. So could you tell listeners in more detail, what exactly do you do when you work with developing country comments? I recall you work with the, uh, Rwanda specifically. So what do you do there? I wonder if I should perhaps start by, 
is it helpful to start by articulating a bit about the gap we're trying to fill? Maybe that can yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. set the context yeah. of it. Yeah. The, I, I described before sort of what we're trying to do you know, as, as an organization at a at high level, right? And um, we've come to this idea, you know, based on our practical experience working with um, a bunch of different governments in various places, right, from the inside, right? So um, my co-founder and I have been embedded within, within governments um, in different places um, working there. And so we've seen um, sort of how the... Um, existing sort of environment operates when it comes to um, external support, advice, that sort of stuff to governments on, on growth, right? So um, I'll just give a bit of background about that, which is, you know, essentially the status quo, right? So um, typically sort of there's this, this view that um, governments don't have the right ideas, or as I was saying before, the right institutions in place to drive growth, right? So the natural solution to that is, okay, let's recommend best practice policy ideas, best practice reforms based on experiences from other countries. And sometimes from other countries that are wildly different from the country that, that we're talking about, right? Um, so um, there's a, a few different, I think, challenges, a few different gaps that we've identified um, based on sort of, you know, this, this is a really, shortened the uh, high level summary of sort of the status quo. So I, I don't mean to disparage it too much. And in fact, actually what we're trying to do is complementary, but just to give a flavor, right? So there's a couple of sort of key things, key observations that we made about this status quo that, you know, you know, we feel, um, you know, leave some, some gaps that we're trying to fill, right? So one is that, uh, a lot of this support, assist, technical assistance, et cetera, comes in the form of analyses, reports, strategy documents, studies, et cetera. Yeah. So that's sort of, um, as I was saying before, in the policy cycle, that's like upstream in the policy cycle, right? And the implied problem that th that's trying to solve is that, okay, you know, we, we just need to figure out what to do, right? And that's why we need to do all this analysis and reports and all this stuff, right? Um, the challenge that we've witnessed is that if you come back and see, you know, a, a lot of these things are produced all the time by various various folks. Uh, if you come back and see, say, six months down the line, okay, what is now happening with these reports, analyses, et cetera? Is the government doing anything with them, right? Um, to a first approximation, the answer is no. Right? That, like, sort of nothing has happened, right? Like, that the report is still, or the document is still, sitting on a shelf somewhere, collecting dust in a, in a filing cabinet, you know, something like that, right? And I mean, if you go to um, a government office in many, many places, like you, you'll just, you can just see this with your own eyes, right? Um, and in fact, a lot of the big development players, they sort of like somehow implicitly recognize this, right? So, there, I mean, funnily, there was a, there was a World Bank study um, in 2014, that was done that indicates that nearly one third of World Bank policy reports, right? So their own reports, they did a study about their own reports published between 2008 and 2012. So that was the, the time period that they were looking at. 
one third of their the reports were never downloaded, not even once. And an additional 40% of these reports that they analyzed were downloaded no more than 100 times. So we're talking a full sort of 70 plus percent of all the World Bank policy reports that were published between, you know, in these years, in this time period, were basically hardly ever viewed. Yeah, so it's sort of, these are sort of reports that were posted online and all this, but there's an analogous thing happening at the country level within countries, right? That like, you know, a lot of this stuff is just not being read and uh, absorbed and, you know, no one is actually trying to take it forward, right? So, and, and as I said, like they they acknowledge themselves, right? So that's one part of the thing. And, and, and we call this sort of the translation gap that, you know, essentially you have all these things, all these reports, analyses, they're at a high level, but what government sort of um, often is not able to do is like take that down to sort of from the 30,000 foot level or the 20,000 foot level down to the 10,000 or 1,000 foot level to actually put together sort of a, a practicable sort of concrete set of actions that it can take sort of in the next, say, three months or six months or whatever. Okay, so that's one thing. And that's one thing that we're trying to work on in, in Rwanda, for example. That's one core part of um, what we're trying to do initially, right? Again, we have that bigger vision, but this we're trying to start in concrete ways to fill some concrete gaps. So that's one concrete gap that we're trying to fill. Second concrete gap, right, is that, again, when we're talking about this technical assistance and all this, um, you know, you have a lot of projects that are going on all over the, in, in many, many countries, right, um, across all, all sorts of areas, infrastructure and skills development and, um, you know, policy development and sectoral strategies and the list goes on and on, okay? And oftentimes um, these external projects, what they'll do is um, when it comes to imp implementation, they'll sort of take on implementation themselves, more or less, right? So they'll hire some consultants, they'll set up a project management unit, like a PMU um, or some sort of like unit. And sometimes that unit will sit inside of a government agency ostensibly. So physically they'll have an office there or something. But in practice, you know, that unit will be staffed by external people and they'll, they'll oftentimes sort of be doing their own thing. And, and that's because they're, they've been hired to essentially implement that project, right? The project that they've been hired for. In addition, sort of it's a time-bound thing, right? So the project ha you know, has a lifespan of three years or four years or five years or whatever it is, right? So they, you know, this unit will implement the project and then they'll leave, right? Because that's what they were hired to do. So then if you ask, ask the question, okay, um, after the project is completed and this unit sort of disbands, um, has the capability of that government agency where these guys were sitting, has the capability of it improved? Like, are they now able to do more stuff that they need to do in order to enable sort of, um, or in order to sort of problem solve and unlock different things that are required for, you know, the private sector to grow? And the answer again is usually, in my experience anyway, usually no, right? And, and that's, it's pretty obvious why, because that approach was never even intended to tackle the state capability problem in the first instance, right? <laughs> that that approach was meant to implement a specific project over a specific period of time, right? But we know that state capability is a long-term project. It's a what um, one of our um, one of our mentors likes to call a hard slog, 
right? It takes a long time over many decades to actually build up capability. You have to do it incrementally, right? I spoke with one of my um, government, my, one of my past government counterparts recently. I saw him um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and when I was telling him about what we're trying to do with growth teams, he immediately sort of, it just clicked. He was like, oh yeah, yeah. like I totally get it. Like um, the existing models of working in governments are simply not sustainable, right? Precisely for the reason that I've just articulated, right? So people in government really get it, right? They, they immediately understand, right? So that's the other piece of this that we're also trying to work on. That's the other gap that we're trying to fill is like, let's, work, let's work through a different model with government such that we're not just coming and implementing some time-bound specific narrow project. Let's actually work with government on the stuff that it needs to do, the problems that it needs to solve, and work through them rather than substitute for their capability, right? Let's work through them so that they can learn by doing over time to help them to sort of actually fulfill the functions that they, the government, should be filling. Okay, that was a long-winded answer, but uh, hopefully that gives gives the background. I'll, I'll stop there. It gives me a few more questions. So specifically, you know, in a, Great. In like what are, the, what are the policies you're working with the Rwandan government on? Perfect, yeah. So I'll give a, I'll give a couple of examples of both of the things that I just laid out. Yeah, so, um, and I'll, I'll try to sort of de-anonymize some stuff, but I'll, I'll try to give a flavor, yeah? So on the translation gap that I was talking about, right? So one thing that we've been trying to work on with, um, and we're working with with one key entity in Rwanda, right? That That's um, one of the key government agencies focused on investment and, and um private sector development in, in the country, yeah? So um, one of the, key, one of the uh, streams of work that we have there is essentially to help them to try to um, prioritize and set uh, their focus in the right direction in terms of which parts of the economy might Rwanda um, have more potential in and how can we sort of like you know, shift our attention and, and focus towards towards those things, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, so sort, of, um, sort of like teaching them basically uh, growth macro. I mean, sort of like an in, uh, uh, you know, uh, an intermediate class of uh, macro, of of, of macro of, of growth uh, economics in developing countries. Yeah, but sort of le less theoretical than that, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Much more practically oriented towards the job that they have to do, okay. right? So they're not sitting around doing macro research, right? right. These, these guys are actually, um, what what their role is, among other things, is to try to go out and figure out which parts of the Rwandan economy might have higher promise, mm -hmm. and how can we bring an investment into those areas and unblock problems in those areas such that firms that are operating in those areas can actually grow. So it's a really practical thing, right? It's not really about sort of like, you know, how do we increase sort of macro level investment and all, the, all this stuff. It's, it's really sort of one level down from that, yeah? Okay, so, um, you know, a bit of sort of the, the, the um, context here is that there've been a lot of strategies and, and um, sector prioritization exercises done over, over the last many years by various outside folks um, for Rwanda, right? And, um, you know, a lot of that stuff has, you know, reasonable ideas and recommendations. And they say, hey, you know, based on our analysis, you should look at X, Y, and Z areas or A, B, and C areas. And great. I mean, it's, it's all fine and all done by reputable, sort of highly capable uh, people, yeah, uh, and organizations. 
Um, the challenge is that um, what a lot of what those uh, analyses and recommendations are saying aren't quite aligned with what this agency is actually focused on. Like, what are they actually, as an organization, spending their, you know, spending their attention and and time on, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, again, it sort of goes back to what I was saying before. It strikes me that that's a problem, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That uh, you know, if if you have a reasonable strategy, you should actually try to, you know, align what you're actually doing day to day with that with that strategy. Right? So that is what um, you know, uh, technical assistance from conventional places like the World Bank get, gets wrong, as in they are less connected to the actual priorities of the uh, specific departments and organizations. I think that's a reasonable summary. Yeah, that um, there's a gap there, essentially. That there's a, re let's put it another way. There's a reason why, you know, the agency that we're working with has not aligned itself with all these, you know, strategy documents and recommendations and all that, right? And and yet that's been going on for many years, mm -hmm. right? It's not a recent thing. Like the, 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 this this gap has been there for many many years, and we know that because my, my co-founder has actually been working in Rwanda for for quite a long time. So um, yeah, so what one thing that we've been trying to do is, you know, how can we try to reorient Let, let's first sort of you know take go from you know that existing research and analysis and all that that's out there already so you know the the end uh you know sort of strategy document we sort of felt was not going to be of high marginal value mm -hmm. right so we said okay rather than doing the nth sort of exercise of trying to figure out you know what's uh highly promising let's not do that let's work with what we have and let's that is practical for the government, right? So we did that, and then what we've been trying to do is sort of working with to align a bit better with sort of the what what is coming out of the analysis, right? Okay. So that that that's one piece. Yeah, go ahead. Do you recommend specific policies like you know you you should have this subsidy or that uh, financing program, or is it just meta level work? Yeah, so I'll come to that. That's great. That's a good segue. So that's one stream of work that we're doing. And again, that, that's related to the first gap that I was articulating, which is what we call the translation gap. The second gap is about sort of this like implementation and state capability, right? So that's where your question comes in. So we have a second stream of work in, in Rwanda, which is focused on a particular sector that seems to be of, of um, high promise, right? And, and the agency that we're working with already has a team that is sort of meant to be focused on this sector, yeah? Um, and so the challenge here is the following, that um, what we're trying to do is essentially supercharge that team to actually proactively try to um, do what is needed to su support the development of this sector, mm -hmm. yeah? And so do what is needed. There's a lot of stuff bundled there. So I'll, I'll try to unpack that. So the, there's a few few different things there. One thing that is needed is how can we try to attract investment into this sector, right? So there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done for that, right? There's a sort of view I think out there, that, especially, I mean, I, I don't fault anybody for it, but there's a view out there that uh, I think that like, okay, if we just get the macro, uh, macro environment right and we get this sort of general uh, business environment right, like then the investors will just, you know, come beating down our door, 
-hmm. And um, that view doesn't really accord with my experience at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, take Rwanda, right? Rwanda is a small country. It's landlocked. Um, it has a certain reputation, I think, globally, right? Because of sort of some of its past uh, political challenges, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think if you were to ask sort of just like the, the average sort of like, you know, big company or investor somewhere, they probably wouldn't know all that much about Rwanda. They wouldn't really know like if it's a, a place at all that they should consider investing in. Like, so there's a massive information problem. On a map. Yeah, they couldn't even point to it on a map, exactly, right? So there's a massive information problem here, information asymmetry, right? Um, those of us that have been to Rwanda and, you know, have worked there, like, you know, we know that the that the reality is quite different, right? But that's because we have more information, we, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so in my experience, that's not how it actually works. That actually, government oftentimes, oftentimes does have to do some proactive sort of engagement to try to attract investment into the country. Right. So that's one thing that it has to do. Right. One of the things that it has to do to enable to to, to enable, you know, this sector to develop. Another thing that it has to do is get the policy environment right. So that goes to your question. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, part of that is sort of this like general sort of business environment stuff. Right. So is it easy to set up a business? Is it easy to get permits? Is it easy to sort of do construction? Is it easy to do all this stuff? Is it easy to pay your taxes? Easy to get stuff in and out of customs? All that sort of general environment, business environment stuff. Okay. And that, that's all well and good and that's important, right? There's also on top of that, a bunch of other stuff that um, the sector that we're working yeah, on is going to be quite part. different than for yeah, uh, you know a different sector quite obviously so, so right so uh, that's could you be the yeah, last sure. part, i'll give an example oh uh, yeah sure yeah so um there's essentially that general enabling business environment stuff that matters right mm -hmm. but what also matters is a bunch of other stuff that is more specific to different sectors right it's okay. specific to a sector right um so you know you can think about um what what is a example that i usually like to use yeah so think about like uh, food processing right okay so you know you know there, there are certain things that like you know a manufacturing in, in food processing requires that say somebody that's operating in um take the financial sector maybe doesn't require or somebody okay. that's operating in, um, you know, say the IT sector doesn't require, right? So mm -hmm. uh, an example is that some a manufacturer in food processing, probably they need some uh, amount of like um, cold chain logistics, for example, right? Like they need that because they, they probably, they maybe they're, they're producing some type of food product that maybe requires refrigeration, getting from the, 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 the point of production sort of to the market and, you know, so, Cold chain might be required there. Some amount of efficient, low-cost cold chain logistics might be required, right? Cold chain logistics is not usually required for IT. <laughs> IT has different sorts of requirements. IT sort of requires like certain types of skills among the workers that are employed in the in that sector, mm -hmm. right? So there's lots of different requirements that are sector specific, right? And and that's where sort of having the right policy framework becomes important, right? Because not only do you need the right policy framework at the sort of general business environment level, you also need it 
that that starting to work on Rwanda, right? Um, is um, some of these constraints, some of these key sector-specific constraints, have already been identified. Uh, again, by other sort of consultants and reports and strategies and all this, mm -hmm. but now they need to be acted upon, right? Now we actually need to unlock those constraints, right? Mm -hmm. It's not good enough to just say X, Y, and Z are problems in a sector. You have to actually solve so those problems, right? Uh, tell garments how to solve these things. As in, do you have industry-specific knowledge or? We don't tell them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, again, telling is not the solution, right? Like somebody has already told them. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that again, it's not a knowledge problem. Right. So telling implies that, oh, they just don't know what to do. Well, they have some ideas. It's not perfect and um, it's probabilistic. Right. So just because you have ideas about what you need to do doesn't mean those are the right ideas. Doesn't mean that if you implement them perfectly, that it'll solve the problems that you're trying to solve. But um, some ideas already there. Right. So in, in the sector that we're focused on, I'll give an example, like um, certain types of skills among workers are an important input. Right, so firms in the sector require certain types of skills among the workers, and and so certain types of say training programs and all this may need to be set up to, uh, to enable sort of a, a pipeline of workers that can go and work in this sector in this space. Right, um, so that's already been identified as a constraint. Now, what the government needs to do is go and actually figure out how do we, you know, build up that pipeline of workers that have those skills. Right, so that's where some of this problem solving, some of this sort of different way of working with government comes in, right? So what we're doing is we're not saying, oh, we're going to come and sort of set up a, a training program for you. You know, other donors, uh, you know, other development partners will, will um, may do that, right? So there are other organizations that are in this space, right? Um, what we're trying to do is work on the government side to help them to fulfill their role, at, you know, the, to help them to sort of do their piece of the puzzle in all of this. Right. Like, and that requires some what is yeah. it what does he help them mean? Ah uh, yeah. So um what does help them mean? Right. So the um the way that and we've we've sort of recently sort of gone through an, an, a next iteration of articulating sort of what we mean by this, right? So um in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is provide scaffolding for sort of sustained action and improved implementation, improved action sort of on these constraints, right? Let me back up briefly. The status quo is that um, in many places, as I was describing before, you know, have these externally funded and implemented projects. Those don't necessarily actually improve the, improve the functioning of, you know, um, key government agencies that have the mandate to promote growth. Um, and, and tying that to the previous fact that I mentioned that state capability isn't really improving, right? So there's there's a problem here that like state capability is not improving, it is important for growth. So we need to figure out how to improve state capability. And, and by state capability, all I mean is the ability of government to actually get stuff done. That's that's what I mean, yeah? Really? And so that's, that's flagging, that's suffering. And that's been suffering over several decades. That's what but, the data suggests, like, so right? So what we're trying to do is, yeah, for example, in the food yeah. in, in the food processing one, and the you know the, the bureaucrats know that they need to you know develop the infrastructure for a cold chain thing for a cold chain facility and a and a, and transport <clears throat> uh, in uh, infra. But where do you come in there? How do how do you help them? 
Yeah, great. So take that example. What would so suppose that's missing? Suppose that cold chain logistics is missing, right? So, um, what what is needed, right? You probably need some investment into that space, right? Some providers need to come in there, right, and and tr start providing that service. You probably need some amount of policy or regulatory framework, right? Mm -hmm. You probably need some amount of coordination across government, right? Um, because maybe maybe that element require you know requires different parts of government to do different things right so maybe it requires mm -hmm. like the ministry of transport to do something maybe it requires the ministry of infrastructure to do something maybe it requires the investment agency to do something right so there's okay so there's a there's almost always there's many different things that are required to unlock a constraint like that okay. to unlock any constraint right mm -hmm. um and so government has a role to play there and so what we're doing is that we are not government Right. And and the existing sort of ecosystem is coming and you know, doing these one off projects that may or may not be actually tackling some of some pieces of that constraint. But ultimately, what we're doing and the, the counterpart that we have in Rwanda, for example, is, as I've said before, the, the key growth and private sector development agency, their role in this in unlocking a constraint like that is not necessarily to directly make the investment in the, into that cold chain logistics or to directly build the road or whatever. Their role is to, is sort of one of information, one of coordination, right? Mm -hmm. One of policy. That's their role, right? So they have to figure out what information is to give to require so on mm -hmm. they have to then coordinate across different parts of government and with the private sector on an ongoing basis right to figure out okay um it's is this is this are, are the things that we're trying to do to unlock that cold chain logistics constraint are they actually working mm -hmm. are we on the path to actually unlocking that constraint mm -hmm. are there adjustments that we need to make you know is the ministry of transport the ministry of infrastructure are they doing what they should be doing mm -hmm. right these are all, they sound really mundane. They're completely non-trivial. They're mm -hmm. really, really important and neglected things that um, if you haven't sort of seen how this works in government, you would never actually know that they matter. But sort of in many cases, a lot of this stuff simply does not happen. Or if it mm -hmm. happens, it happens at a very low level. Right. So I that's why you get constraints. The binding constraint for this government is just doing the, the normal stuff of following up coordinating, uh, you know, writing down things which you might consider would be completely obvious, but but nobody does it because it's probably not obvious and it's too hard to do it. As in getting the administrative, the 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 foundation right is what you're providing for these uh government departments and entire uh, governments uh, in fact. Yeah, I think you've you've captured it well. And the way we like to frame it is that um what we're talking about here, we're talking about organizations, right? So government is not monolithic. Right. It's it, government is made up of a bunch of different organizations that operate in very different ways, have different politics, have different tensions and overlaps. And, you know, so we're talking about organizations. And when we're talking about, you know, the ability to get things done, organizations matter, right? And, and that's another sort of, I think, gap in the economics literature that sort of focus, it focuses on institutions and sort of neglects the role of organizations in all of this, right? And so that's exactly what we're talking about is that how do you get these organizations, if state capability has been lagging for decades, 
part of that is that these organizations are not functioning as they should, right? And so we're, we're trying to say, let's figure out how can we, and we're not coming and saying, oh, we have the magic solution or the silver bullet to mm-hmm. fix all organizational dysfunction. That That's a complete overstatement and <laughs> like that that doesn't exist that silver bullet does not exist right like improving organizational functioning is a long you know um process it's it takes place over time and it's iterative and it requires a lot of learning by doing right so what we're trying to do is provide the scaffolding for that organizational sort of learning to happen over time right so we have a few different pieces of that right and one of one of it is sort of providing some you know um processes and tools and structures to enable the teams that we're working with to actually, you know, get on a sort of higher productivity path, essentially, in their own work, okay. right? Right now, they're sort of at, stuck in a low equilibrium of sort of low activity and sort of a lot of these constraints that they should be trying to un- unlock, essentially remaining unlocked for years at a time, Okay. right? So we're trying to get them on a path to um, higher productivity such that they can try to be more proactive about unlocking those constraints, right? That's one piece. Another piece is trying to do some of this targeted learning, right? So there are some areas where, okay, we can provide some direct sort of um, technical sort of, I guess, um, you know, I don't know what you want to call it. Training maybe is the right word, right? So Mm -hmm. skill building, training, whatever you want to call it to say, for example, um, how do you go about, you know, trying to, Uh, attract investment what are the key things that you need to be doing and all that stuff right that's sort of a technical training skill building sort of thing right how do you think about um you know how do you how to do sort of how to identify you know sectors that are highly promising you know that's a specific sort of skill building piece Mm -hmm. then there's a piece about information flow right so that relates to what i was saying before about information coordination all that you know we need some systems to actually track sort of the information that we have how to share it all that stuff Right. And that, that's within government and between government and private sector. Right. So we're trying to do all these things. It's essentially, again, really mundane stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I say it out loud sometimes and I think like, what, what are we talking about here? It's sort of just like stuff that, um, you know, a lot of people are doing on an everyday basis. But, you know, stuff that we also see that is just, you know, it's, it's largely missing. And, and it's sort of the nuts and bolts. It's the it's the day-to-day stuff that sort of makes an organization work, right? So that's what we're, that's one core piece of what we're trying to provide is, is all that stuff. And, and again, like we could, we could just come and just do all this and substitute for them, right? So we could say, okay, we're going to come and just do all this stuff for you. And like your team is sort of just effectively going to be sidelined, right? But our view is that that's sort of what the status quo has been doing, but ultimately we are not government. So eventually we will leave and then what's going to happen after that? You want them and, to build these skills themselves, to teach them to fish. Essentially, yeah. And and what you need to do is develop a methodology around that. There's, there's a lot of talk about teaching people to fish, right? But when you get into the brass tacks about, you know, what does that mean? That's the question that we're trying to answer, right? Is that like, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean to not only build some individual capabilities, but how do you build capabilities of teams of human beings? You know, that's actually the key piece of this, right? That it's actually teams of human beings that need to be working together and be working with other teams of hum- human beings and other parts of government and other parts of the private sector. That That's sort of sort of our mental model of how, how this is going to work. How do you judge your success or failure in this context? And like, before yeah, so, you ask, uh, how much time do you have? 
because I'm. I have plenty of time. I, I know I'm rambling a lot, but yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I, so we should take it up till 1.30 I, uh, ISD for now, okay? That's fine. Uh, yeah, sorry for the rambling. No, <laughs> uh, but uh, hopefully I'm sort of giving you um, some some uh, food for thought. Um, how do you measure? Yeah, so um, first thing to say is that, you know, I think the type of work that we're doing is not so amenable to um, the traditional sort of um, causal identification and analysis that has, has become sort of, that has gained in popularity in the development space over the last many years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, both my co-founder and I are quite familiar with that because we used to work in that world. So um, th that was sort of earlier in our, our in our careers. So um, that's one thing to say is that um, we're never going to I think we're unlikely to get sort of the perfect, uh, uh, perfectly causally identified RCT that sort of shows, like you know, that that's sort of not our main concern. Right. And, and that's largely because. To, to steal from um, Len Pritchett, who's one of our um, sort of mentors and advisors. Um, uh, development is a team sport, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, um, we should care more about sort of what, as I was saying before, what teams of people are doing and how to get teams of people to actually act in, in, in a better fashion rather than trying to, you know, causally identify the, you know, specific contribution of me or you or him or her. So um, that's one Point to make. Second point to make is more directly on, on your question, right? So I think the high level sort of thing to say here is that we're, we're trying to figure out sort of how can we back out what our contribution was to sort of, um, you know, the, the places where we're working and, and the organizations that we're working with, right? So um, we've just started working this year, right? So we're actually now in the um, one of the top things on our agenda is to actually lay it, lay down a framework for sort of measurement and evaluation and all that. So we, we don't have that on paper yet. Yeah, mm -hmm. but a couple of ideas that we have there. So one is that we have some indicators in mind, right? So there's sort of like the high level indicators that you could talk about, which are more towards outcomes, right? So you could talk about investment and exports and those sort of real sort of macro level stuff. And you can even bring that down one level to think about, okay, within the areas that we're focused on, right? I, I was telling you before that we're focused on particular mm -hmm. sort of parts of the economy, right? You could you could think about some of those higher level variables mm -hmm. um, and see if some of those things are changing. But, you know, again, for those things, there are many, many facts. Those are highly multi-dimensional sort of things, right? So there's many, many factors that are feeding into you know, investment levels, export levels, all that stuff, right? So we can never claim that, you know, we can never claim or even trace back our contribution, right? But it can give a sense about directionality, right? Okay. So that's a, that's at the high level. Taking it, one, you know, one or two levels further down, we can also try to go to the behavioral level, essentially, right? So what I was describing before was essentially we're trying to get the behavior of teams and ultimately sort of, of um, the organization to shift, okay, right? That's essentially at the core of what we're trying to do. The organization, what we're saying is that is that the organization is operating in a certain way right now, and we're trying to actually shift that towards a different way of operating, right? Um, and so that's that's in large part about behavior, right? And and that's something that qualitatively we've all already I think see, seen some shifts in. I won't get too much into the details, but um, you know essentially the status quo. Uh, among um, you know some of the some of the um, 
teams of people that we were working with is that, as I was saying before, there's sort of maybe like not as much proactiveness in terms of, you know, going out to attract investment and, you know, articulating the right things that investors want to see. And then like, you know, going out and trying to identify and work on some of the key constraints for the sectors um, that they're focused on. A lot of that, that requires work, right? That requires proactive energy and strategy and, you know, day-to-day working and, and mm-hmm. problem solving. And a lot of that, um, in my view, you know, maybe it wasn't happening at the level that it was needed to be happening. And again, you know, we have a particular vantage point there because, you know, my, co- my co-founder has, has worked in Rwanda for, for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, this is not a Rwanda-specific mm-hmm. thing. It's not, you know, I'm not trying to pick on anybody here. This is the case in many, many places, mm-hmm. you know. Um, this is the case in many, many places. And so what, we're, what, what we've seen so far is that there has been sort of a shift um, in sort of the, the way in which the teams that we're working with are, are actually working, the way in which they're approaching their day-to-day work, the way in which they're actually trying to uh, strategize, the way in which they're actually getting mm-hmm. things done, getting actual tasks right. done. Um, but, um, you know, yeah. the, the question I might want to ask you, I have two questions here. The first is, don't you have the very strong incentive to uh, tell governments what they want to hear? Because, you know, you, it's it's very hard to go tell people and say, oh, you've gotten this wrong. And, you know, that method, that's completely, I mean, obviously then there, there are ways of framing it and you can be polite and so on. But, you know, uh, how do you deal with that problem? Yeah. Um, so, um, I think that's that's an important point that, um, and and it's almost like a sort of unavoidable uh, challenge, right? That um, there may always be an incentive as an external player to to um, tell a government what they want to hear somehow because um, you know uh, they're they're sort of who you're working for, right? So two different things, right? So one is. Um, Perhaps all governments want to, you know, want external people to tell them what they want to, what they want to hear. Okay, but I also make the claim that again, even here, there's variation. <laughs> but um, not all countries are the same. Not all of them are just like sort of, you know, heads in the sand or whatever. You know, there's variation, and um, there's variation not only at the level of the government, but again, governments are made up of organizations which are in turn made up of people. And so even at the people level, there's quite a lot of variation, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, you know, in a place that I've worked in the past, um, when I was working there, there was actually quite a lot of openness to external input. And I was literally in meetings with, you know, some of the very most important decision makers with respect to growth in the government. And they would challenge everyone in the meeting, their, their own government people, external people, everyone. And they were, I mean, my my impression was that they were very much looking to try to get the best sort of points of view, mm-hmm. right? Um, even if, again, even in that case, perhaps you could make the claim that they just wanted to be told what they wanted to hear, right? So again, there's quite a lot of variation. Okay. Um, number two, the second second point here is that um, because there's variation, in, in our experience, in many, many governments uh, all over the place, mm-hmm. you can find what you could call progressive sort of reform-minded people who are in positions of decision-making authority. Mm-hmm. And um, they often need help, 
right? So people aren't purely just driven by their naked incentives, right? I think that that would be a really impoverished view of how human beings operate, right? So <laughs> yes, uh, incentives are there. Incentives to hear what you want to hear, uh, to, to be told what you want to hear. Incentives to just act in your naked self-interest. Of course, all those are there. Yet, <laughs> we don't, I mean, we don't see human behavior all the time everywhere adhering strictly to those incentives, right? So something else is going on, right? Like mm -hmm. there seems to be other things that are operating on human behavior, right? right? And so let's just, you know, let's just recognize that, that like human beings are complex. And so um, that's the case, whether you're talking about people in government, people in private sector, people in whatever, right? So I've met many, many people um, who are in positions of decision-making authority in key government agencies, trying to focus on, you know, how to, how to, how to attract investment and build up their private sectors and, and generate growth, all that stuff that have, you know, as far as I can tell, you know, really reasonable, positive intentions. Mm -hmm. And so somehow that's actually also a filter for um, external folks, you know, trying to work with governments is that like, you know, let's try to find those people. Let's identify those people okay. and let's then help them to, to uh, push forward their agendas. Right. So, and, and people like that, in my view, are probably less likely to, just want to be told what they want to hear, right? Speaking of which, you know, um, is yeah. it possible to, to scale this up? Like you know, 10 years later, if growth teams is as big as other, uh, you know, maybe not, not not World Bank size, but, but, but like any other large technical assistance thing, you know, um, is it possible to get this done over 5, 15, 25, 30 countries? Rather than it, like, how does, how, what does that future look like? Brilliant. Yeah. So I think this leads actually to the third point I was going to make, and I'll just make that point and then tie it to this point. Cause I, I think it's, it's brilliant. Short answer to your question is yes, I absolutely don't see why we can't sort of scale this up to that level. Obviously we are very early days now. Right. And so there's a lot of open questions about sort of the hypothesis under, under, um, underneath our theory of change about sort of, the, the model that we want to try to push forward about, you know, all that stuff. But uh, in theory, I don't see why we couldn't scale it up. So I'll, I'll, I'll mention this, this last point that I was going to make on your previous question and then tie it back. So source of funding matters here as well. Yeah. So um, a lot of the existing players, uh, somehow they have some constraints about sort of being able to push back on government um, because of sort of, the funding and the associated politics with that funding, right? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes governments interpret them because of sort of who they are um, as sitting on the other side of the table from government, right? Mm -hmm. And that poses a barrier to trust building. It poses a barrier to sort of, it, it, there's always sort of an, there's always, always can be a sort of underlying sort of like, you know, on the government side, thinking, you know, are they are they doing this for their own incentives, <laughs> or are they doing it because they think that's actually that's actually what's best for us, right? Um, and then on the on the other side of the table, sort of, you know, take a multilateral, you know, um, development institution, or you know, mm -hmm. that that's what I have in my head, right? You know, their source of funding comes from governments themselves, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. that actually constrains, in some cases, their their ability to sort of say what they actually want to say or say it in the way that they want to say it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a whole bunch of other sort of politics going on in terms of how the funding ties into sort of the, those sorts of politics, those micro level politics, right? And so um, what we're trying to do is like, you know, um, say, 
we're on government side of the table. And I think our view is that that, that trust um, it enables, um, you know, giving more honest advice um, with the best available analysis and evidence um, and sort of being forthright in a way that some of these other actors just are oftentimes unable to do, right? So, okay, so, and, and the reason I say that is because we're, the funding source that we're going for, I think is, is largely different, right? So we're initially, and we've initially aimed for philanthropic funding to do this work. Um, and, and again, that's sort of coming out of our learning, having worked in this space for many, many years and seeing the pitfalls and the challenges of sort of where the funding coming from sort of having a big, big influence over how you can actually work with government, right? So we sort of feel that philanthropy can enable the model that we're trying to pursue in a, in a better way than other sources of funding. So that ties to your question about scaling up that, I mean, we sort of feel that there's a lot, there's a lot and growing philanthropy in the, in the world generally, but that's also getting interested in some of these issues about economic growth being really important for developing countries. Um, and then sort of, state capability and the, the, the ability of governments to, to get stuff done, that also being really important. There's growing recognition of all these things among, I think, the development community, but also the philanthropic community. And so um, somehow our bigger picture goal is to perhaps not exclusively, but with uh, philanthropy, philanthropy playing a big role, um, we can sort of get to this more scaled up version. So, um, yeah, that's that's what I have to, I'd have to say about that. That that's what we think is possible. We think it, you know, we think it's possible. We think we can get there. It might take some time, um, but um, you know, we got to start somewhere. So mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's what we're doing. What are the most underrated uh, economic, broadly, uh, general policies for 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 economic growth that that um, these both civil servants and academics miss you might you mean you, you you've been across both sides of these both first in learning in school and then working with them what do they miss yeah so it's it's um a bit tied to um you know something i mentioned before about you know um sort of the some of the real practical elements not really sort of making the way, their way into sort of academic discourse. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll start with one, a high level point, which is that um, sort of underrated reforms, um, I, I think somehow, you know, maybe, and I know that I think maybe somebody else had posed that question on your Twitter uh, post, uh, on your tweet, uh, rather than you, but I, I think underrated reforms maybe is, uh, I'd like to sort of shift the framing away from that. And that's for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, one is that there's already quite a lot of attention all over the place in many, many countries about reforms, right? And, and implicitly what that means is that change this policy or change that, you know, uh, regulation or whatever. So it's sort of the de jure stuff, right? So what's written down on paper? Yeah, and, and what we've been talking about this whole time is sort of the, you know, what's on paper and what's in practice sort of, there's quite a lot of divergence, right? Uh, in many, in many cases and in many places. Right. So, um, so that's one point on sort of reforms. Second point in reforms is that there's actually some research out there um, that that tries to show, and that's um, from there's a paper back from 2005, I think it was, uh, Lent Pritchett, Danny Roderick, Ricardo Hausman, that 
that sort of like tried to look at um, the effect of reforms on growth and sort of the, the, the high level finding, if I'm not mistaken, was that, um, you know, many, many reform episodes aren't necessarily followed by growth episodes, right? So you can do reform and not necessarily get growth, but um, if you get growth, that there's some reasonably high probability that you've done some reform, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the translation from reform to growth is, is, is highly imperfect. There's another paper more recently from, I think, a couple of years ago um, from Terzi and um, a co-author that sort of shows the same thing, right? So I think what I'm trying to say here is that reforms maybe, in my view, get maybe a bit too much attention as compared to what I'm about to say, which is actually the implementation, the state capability, the ability to get things done, right? So I think that's what I would say is the underrated sort of, <laughs> I, I won't use the term reform, but the underrated thing that maybe we should be focusing more on to try to uh, promote growth is execution, right? Getting things done. So mm -hmm. trying to take the good parts of what's already on paper mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to actually make that go into practice. Okay. Right. I think that's sort of what is uh, pretty underrated. Um, and I think um, after many, many uh, uh, attempts at reform in many, many countries and not much progress. I mean, there's many countries that have been trying to do reform in many, many areas, public sector reform and, you know, um, SOE reform and, you know, reform across many domains. And um, in some cases it works okay, in some cases it doesn't, right? And so it strikes me that that implies that sort of the execution capability really, really matters a lot. Um, one other, you know, I'll put in a good word for one other thing, which is that, um, Another underrated sort of thing that we should be focusing on when it comes to growth is trying to identify and um, um, facilitate what we could call sort of um, growth enhancing open deals. So there's a lot of jargon there. <laughs> I won't go into it because I know we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. But um, um, basically, sort of a lot of countries operate on deals rather than rules in a nutshell. You know, to a first approximation. Right, that's it's not a binary, but to a first approximation, deals really matter um, when it comes to trying to attract investment and promote growth. And so, what you want to what you want to do, and what is underrated, is trying to identify, you know, which might be the the, the better deals than uh, than others, and trying to get those deals in place such that um, it can sort of create the space for more and better deals in the future. So, I'll just refer to some of the literature on this. I won't go into it anymore, but um, there's some literature that was done. Um, that, that, there's some literature that was produced by various folks, including Lent Perchett, uh, Kunal Sen, and, and many, many others, uh, through a research initiative at the University of Manchester called ESID, Effective States mm -hmm. and Inclusive Development, mm -hmm. that sort of came up with, uh, not came up with, but sort of framed up some of these frameworks about deals and rules and all this stuff. And and so um, I, I, um, I would recommend... Uh, Actually, I think uh, Mushtaq Khan, in fact, um, is also sort of one of the key people that's mm -hmm. that's worked in the space. Yeah, and I, know I he... heard him on eighty thousand hours. And that... exactly right. So he he's sort of one of the um, key people in the space as well. Um, I know he did the interview on eighty thousand hours, um, and so I, I really highly recommend any any listeners to um, look into some of that um, research because I think our approach is very much informed by that strand of literature. Um, and so that, that's another underrated thing is, is trying to um, uh, trying to um, adopt that that sort of framework and that mindset and, and trying to sort of work with government through that lens. 
um, that that we feel is also uh, highly underrated. Right, and if somebody wanted to do something like like you're doing, and they want to help you, what's the best way of doing that? Oh gosh, <laughs> there's a couple of different questions jumbled into there. So um, maybe I'll take one version of the question. I mean, I think the the uh, what can people do to help us? I, I think you know maybe I'll I'll just be a bit blunt, right? So certainly one of the things that we're focused our time now uh, on now is. Uh, fundraising per per usual, but I think for many many organizations in our situation, that's that's a key thing. Um, but beyond that, um, I think we're very very happy to hear from people from all backgrounds, from all places, from just people that are interested in in um, the type of work that we're trying to do, the issues that we're trying to work on. You know, we sort of feel that um, there's a brewing, you know, perhaps you could call movement in this space um, to try to um, get more attention focused on some of these bigger issues around growth um, in the development space, because um, you know, in, in recent years, um, perhaps you could make the argument that um, attention um, from all different sorts of actors in the development space has shifted towards what you could call individualized interventions and individualized sort of like um, domains. Um, and um, while those are important, um, some of the research that I was citing before at the beginning of our conversation sort of suggests that growth for many, many countries, many developing countries, especially the ones that are sort of like, you know, a bit lower income is, should be the thing that they should be focusing, mm -hmm. focused on largely. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, anyone interested, uh, we're very happy to hear from them. Um, I can uh, share the you know contact information, or maybe you have a web page where uh, mm -hmm. where you you know put the notes from this conversation. But um, you know our our email is founders at growth growth dash teams dot org. Um, right. So that's that's a bit about us. If people want to sort of reach out to us or help us out, um, that that's a bit about us. In terms of more broadly, we we actually have sort of this this bigger idea in mind. Um, not only in terms of working with governments, but we have been asking the question um, ourselves recently about what are all the things that, or, or what are some of the key things, let's say, that um, anybody, that the world should should be thinking about doing um, that can address different parts of sort of the growth puzzle, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. And and perhaps that are things that maybe don't have as much attention on, on them at the moment and you know there's a lot of attention on macro policy and on trade policy and these things and all these things are obviously very obviously very important right um but we've been thinking about what are some other elements right um so um you know a couple of things i'll just throw out right that that come from the literature from that come from some of our experience um you can think about different levels right so one level is sort of at the, I guess, sort of sector enabling environment level, which is like what we're trying to do, right? Like we're trying to work with government to enable sort of high potential parts of the economy to to be able to get investment and, and to grow and to create jobs and all that stuff, right? And, and we've identified some specific gaps and specific problems um, in external support to government that, you know, we're trying to um, fill, right? So that, that's at that level. Then you can think about sort of perhaps one level down, like, at the cluster level, right? So when I say cluster, I'm thinking about like, you know, groups of firms, right? That are perhaps operating in the same space, same part of the economy, right? So that there you can think about things like place-based strategies, spatial policies, that sort of thing. So, 
you know, the, the, the classic, the quintessential sort of like thing here is like a special economic zones. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know, um, I think, um, I think Mark Letter, um, when he was at um, the Charter Cities Institute, I think he had a conversation with you, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So, yep. um, so you know, they're, they're trying to do, work on some version of, of that issue, right? Um, you could then go down, and I, I'm not trying to be comprehensive, I'm just throwing out a few ideas here. You could go down to the firm level, right? So are there things at the firm level that could be done to try to actually, you know, improve, improve uh, firm productivity and, you know, all, all that stuff. So a couple of ideas here that we're, that we're toying with is, um, you know, can you can you um, develop like what you could call a company builder for pioneer firms, right? So essentially, pioneer firms are firms that go into countries um, and and go into sectors that operate in sectors where there's not much presence in that country currently, mm -hmm. right? So uh, if you're talking about Rwanda, maybe you're talking about you know. Um, I don't know, electronics manufacturing or something. I, I'm not saying that that's, uh, I'm not saying they should do that. I'm just giving an example, right? So like mm -hmm. uh, that Rwanda doesn't currently do a lot of electronics manufacturing, you know, maybe you could uh, think about trying to set up a firm that, you know, tries to go into that space, right? So this is uh, coming out of sort of like, you know, some of the literature about like cost discovery and pioneer firms being an important, playing an important role in, in being able to discover the costs that are um, costs of production that are um, inherent to a specific context and, you know, trying to problem solve around that, right? So a company builder for, you know, trying to um, build pioneer firms in countries, right? Another thing at the firm level could be sort of like high quality, scalable sort of consulting around management practices, right? So this comes directly out of the, um, some of the micro literature around sort of uh, management, uh, consulting and, and training around management the practices. Bloom being, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. You got it. So it comes sort of directly out of that. There are, you know, there are some existing players that do that sort of stuff, but you can imagine trying to build a new entity that sort of, you know, or a new initiative that tries to do that in a replicable sort of way, focused narrowly on sort of some of these management issues that are there across many firms, across many countries, right? Another thing you could think about is export facilitation for, for SMEs, right? So this comes out of a paper by, I think, David Atkin, and I forgot the co-author. Um, you know, I, I think they the, the, the paper's from Egypt, right, where they try to sort of work with um, SMEs in a particular sector to try to um, improve their their export performance and you know so there could be something around that it, that that study showed some promise and mm -hmm. had some positive effects so you could think about sort of like targeted export fac facilitation you know for for SMEs something like that so these are just some ideas but I think the point is that these are all part all these ideas in our view is a part of an ecosystem around mm -hmm. trying to tackle various uh, elements of this of this growth challenge for developing countries right so again no silver bullets no perfect you know just adopt the solution and the point is that there's a lot of different pieces that have to be in place to enable sort of not just the initial takeoff of growth but to enable sort of the growth and the diversification over time that is required to sustain you know rapid growth over you know two three four decades right that's the that's the key all right uh, I love talking with you. We, we're sadly reaching the, the, the end of our time here. Uh, so thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> I, I apologize for any uh, excessive rambling that I engaged in, but um, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, um, look forward to uh, being in touch. All right.